Hello, my name is Malcolm Travers, and welcome to the M3 Bear Essentials Podcast. Mail Media Mind is a grassroots organization dedicated to uplifting and unifying the Black Bear community through dialogue, insight, creativity, and knowledge. And every Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern, many of the M3 contributors meet to discuss the current events of the week and to give our unique perspectives on the world. After the recording of these conversations, I will edit those into the Bear Essentials videos, which currently on YouTube, we have about 220 of those videos. But I've also noticed that the videos are too long for those who consume video content. Most videos on YouTube are two two to three minutes long, whereas our conversation every Sunday is about three hours. So when I break it down into one conversation, those videos tend to be 15 to 20 minutes. Since we've already made the Bear Essentials videos for many of these conversations, we're going to continue to make them. And those video conversations will still be on the YouTube channel, which you can find links at mailmediamind.com. I hope that you enjoy this audio version of our discussions and make sure to join all of our different M3 communities so you can get more involved and join us for the live hangout so you can be a part of the discussion. Make sure to Rate us on iTunes or wherever you happen to get your podcast. Give us five stars. Give us reviews. Give us suggestions for future topics. And we hope you enjoy the show. Okay. Um, my name is Marco Estes. I am the M3 Entertainment Editor. And I am a librarian. And that's about it today. I'm a good spirit. Hey guys, I'm Lonnie. Um, I'm a health insurance specialist. Um, I also do the Lonnie's Life Lesson blog and also an M3 contributor and trying to get my ass back in the gym and lose this weight. So this is me. Hi, I'm uh, Jeff Rowan. I am a um, an out uh, coordinator at Emory for a research project uh, dealing with uh, AHLE positive men. I also run a nonprofit called Reach One, which is uh, about empowering communities through education. Um, and I'm also the M3 Media. Hey guys, I'm Gerald Hogan. I am a registered nurse. I'm right now working in dialysis. I'm one of the M3 contributors. I'm mostly um, hanging out over at the M3 Undercover Group and. Uh, just hanging out and I enjoy politics, so you might not hear much from me because I'm trying to stay kind of quiet, but I'm here. <laughs> I'm Derek. I live in New York. I'm fabulous and just a little shady, so the story is still kind of unfolding. Last night, there's a club here in New York called Boots and Saddles. Um, a lot of drag performers uh, perform there. It was, market was, um, Sarah Davenport, is that the one that passed away from um, Drag Race? Yeah. Yes, it was her home bar. Wow. Um, Well, last night, uh, apparently a transgendered performer was put out of the club by security uh, because she was in the ladies' room. He, she was in the ladies' room because he identifies as both. And a straight girl went in there and told him her that they did not belong in there. Um, there was a lot of verbal um, back and forth. And the security guard, apparently, according to the story, the security guard told the transgender performer 
that if she was making the straight girl uncomfortable, then she had to leave. Um, the straight girl's friend uh, verbally assaulted the transgender person with, um, you know, you're not really transgender. Transgender people look like this. You don't look like this. Um, so yeah, it's been ugly. This again, the story is slowly um, coming out. The owners of the club said that there was no management, no one in the management at the club last night. But they are reviewing the videos and such, and that it is their understanding that everyone was asked to leave the club last night, not just the transgender performer. Um, and it's funny, it's one of those things that when you say it out loud, when you start mm -hmm. saying things out loud, things just kind of mm -hmm. click. And I was like, well, this is the same exact thing the police say when they shoot somebody. We are reviewing the videos and we're going to let yeah. you know our take on it. Yeah. Now, I worked at a nightclub in Chicago called The Generator for about three years. From the time I was 22 to 25 mm. um, and with the exception of Monday, no I take that back um, this, the, the, the club was open seven days a week Monday and Tuesday were dead nights and those were usually nights that I bartended so it was usually me and one of the owners because the owners slash managers had to deal with the money because I didn't have access to the money and just any other general situation that comes up um, I remember one night the police came and they checked our licenses again, not my job. My job was to pour drinks. Um, Wednesday through Sunday, there was at least two managers, um, at all times, Saturday and Sunday, everybody was there. Yeah. So Saturday, so last night being a Saturday, I find it difficult to believe that there was no management staff at Boots and Saddles last night. Right. That just doesn't make sense to me it's possible again i wasn't there but um but here's the, the larger problem i don't know if you guys are dealing with this in the south but up here in the north we have been having these issues of um gay men have taken their straight girlfriends to clubs because you know they they want to take them out or whatever and the straight girls have really started to enjoy it you know, to the point where they feel a little um, too comfortable. <laughs> you know, they feel that it's okay to put their hands on people and everything. And then they started bringing their straight boyfriends with them. So now you just have uh, confusion and clusterfuckery. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's been an ongoing problem. I know in New York and I know in Chicago. There's a, a leather club in Chicago mm -hmm. called Cell Block where, um, yeah, a number of, of women, um, um, you know, pretty much white women have uh, decided to show up and show out. And, you know, when the men go in there, you know, in their, in, in their leathers, um, Again, many of these women feel, oh, well, you know, they're gay. They know I don't mean anything by it. I can invade their body space. I can put my hands on them. And when they, you know, when they say, no, don't touch me, 
I feel offended and threatened. <laughs> I just I've heard that a lot yeah. lately. Yeah. Now is that just white women or just women? Period. It's mostly it's it, from my understanding and from what I've seen. It's mostly white women. Um, I've taken my play sister Carla to the club with me a few times when we were younger, and she always enjoyed herself. But you know, Carla was you know not raised you know by wolves. She was raised <laughs> with a mother and a father who taught her how to behave. And she right. never put her hands on people or decided that this space was her space to do with as she wanted. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've actually heard that. I guess the idea that um, women tend to like gay bars in the sense that they don't necessarily feel, I don't know, the, you, you know, they can enjoy touching, like you were saying, without feeling overwhelmed by some yes. of the, the male gaze, I guess you could say. They feel so, they have some sort of con- some sense of control because right. people are in there hitting on them. Right. So they in turn turn into the hit tours on. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've I've heard of it. I've not personally experienced. It. Well, I've noticed that here in Atlanta, like the club Bulldogs, that there's like a lot of um, white women coming in there. However, in Bulldogs, there's no really no set. Um, male or female restrooms. They have one restroom that you know is a man's restroom. However, they have like a little corner where you can go and uh, close the door. Mm-hmm. So I guess they kind of use that as like a unisex um, restroom or whatever. But um, I always thought that the um, gay establishments played by a totally different rule than a so-called heterosexual um, bar or whatever. Well, yeah. I think one of the uh, one of the one one of the other issues is one of money, because about eh, I'm just going to say ten years. I'm throwing a year out there. Ten years <laughs> ago, um, gay uh, LGBT clubs started struggling. You know, with the ad, and we all know this: the advent of the internet and dating apps and such, you don't have to go out and pay a cover charge and buy two, three watered-down drinks in order to get your hookup on. <laughs> you can go, and and you know, if you go in a club now, you go in the club, and people are in there on their apps now. There's five people, <laughs> there's 25 people standing in front of you to choose from. Why the fuck are you on your phone? But that's a whole separate issue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's always the looking for something better. You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, like, oh, I, I see what's in front of me, but let me see what's on Growler. Exactly. <laughs> the, only time, the only time I used to do that, and I got rid of all my dating apps a while ago, yeah. um, the only time I used to do that, because I was interested to see how much pinging I was going to get while I was standing in that place. <laughs> um, but, yeah, when I'm, you know, on those rare occasions where I go out, I'm out. I'm talking to the people that I'm there with, or people that I have met up with. I'll let you know being on the phone. But again, that's me. Um, but the clubs don't want to turn those dollars away. Um, again, I know there are a number of women who decide to have their bachelorette parties in places like this because they can go and look at the men and they feel safe that nobody's going to, you know approach them the wrong way or do anything but they don't see the flip side of that that bitch this ain't your space <laughs> yeah I've heard that was like but, an issue in particular with like um, 
like bachelorette parties. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like Swing and Richards, they're 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 in there a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Too when I've gone, they are. I've never seen a woman inside of a gay establishment. I'm all the times I've been, I haven't seen a woman in there. Now, I do remember one time when I left a particular establishment. I'm not going to say the name. I'm pretty sure everybody here knows what I'm talking about. There was a lot of... I'll explain to you later. There was a lot of women. <laughs> so there was two women with these group of guys. And I looked back at my friends like, where the fuck are they going? <laughs> because that's, mm. it's nothing for dudes up in there. And they're all, you know, gay. And they're like... They always show up at this house. I'm like, for what? I mean, it's just it's kind of weird. You know? So, I've never, I've never experienced it. I mean, the one place that I went to down in Memphis, it was a unisex, you know, gay club. So, you know, there was lesbians and gay men there. So I didn't think nothing else other than an all male establishment or whatnot. I've never, I've only, I've never seen a female in there. Yeah, I've never. Seen I'm just confused. Like, how the fuck did you kick somebody out of a gay establishment who's gay? That that shit. And a performer, and perform, and Lonnie, and performing. She was That's a performer crazy. at Boots and Saddles. Yeah. Kind of talked about it Friday, but it was the uh, the Frank Ocean thing. Like, yes. what is going on with that? Because someone told me that they actually ran into Frank Ocean at a party last night. <laughs> and I was like, who? I, I, first of all, I, I don't really, I'm not that familiar with the story. So what, uh, he was supposed to have an album this weekend or something? Yeah, he was supposed to drop his album exclusively to iTunes this weekend. I haven't had a chance to check myself but I haven't seen it but right, the big right. deal was that it finally got a release date because it was getting pushed back for so long and his first album was met with such wonderful reception I think partially because he did do the whole coming out thing and he had so many artists like you know your Beyonce's your Jay-Z's all these people that were like backing him and supporting him but somewhere it seems like he kind of fell off the stable wheel I'll just say that um, to be nice and politically correct. When was his last album, anyway? Oh God, we're talking three years ago. Oh, was it three years? It might have been longer than that. Yeah, it might have been longer than that. It might was like 2012, something like that. So we're like three, four years out. Yeah, and it's unheard of for somebody to have that much success. I mean, he got nominated for a slew of Grammys. The album did really well, and then he just dropped off the face of the earth. You know, he kind of did a a pseudo Lauren Hill almost. Um, so, yeah, when you say that Jamal lines on Empire is kind of like based off of Frank Ocean a little bit, just a little bit. Yeah, I'll say that. Why? I mean, what's what's? I don't know Frank Ocean, so you all have to. He could walk up in this motherfucker right now. And yeah, I'm that's right. kind of what I was saying. What the fuck are you well, in my house? Um, but why <laughs> do you, other than the gay thing, uh, why do you feel that way? Well, I think the thing with Frank Ocean was that he came along, he had been a songwriter for a very long time, for a very lot of, a lot of artists. He actually has written for Beyonce, Rihanna, I mean, quite a few artists. And then it was kind of like they do with a lot of writers, which is like what even what happened with Missy Elliott. Missy Elliott only wanted to write and produce, but then they told her, no, you need to get out and put a record out before we'll actually let you kind of 
do your niche thing that you do. So um, he, he was writing and he was getting a lot of popularity with some of the stuff he was putting out. He was working with Kanye West. And like I said, all of these hip hop artists singing books. And then he just came out and said, initially he said he was bisexual and he had been in love with a man. And it just sent all these ripples through hip hop um, music more so because that's kind of who he mostly works with. But they were all very supportive, which was kind of the first time that hip hop as a whole had been very gay friendly. So that's why Frank Ocean kind of became the poster child a while for the whole kind of neo new look at the way people are looking at men that yeah. uh, happen to be gay. So what what do you think is the delay on the album? Like, what's the speculation on it? I mean, a lot of it is artistic things. I mean, he's had a couple of, you know, like in music they do, he's had a couple of beefs with a couple of people. Him and Chris um, Brown got into an altercation, supposedly. Um, and then it was kind of like, I mean, almost a Kanye West in the sense of he kind of began to uh, smell his own Kool-Aid. So uh, a lot of that was that, you know, artistically, he was, well, I'm not going to put this out and do this until I can do X, Y, and Z. So it was multiple reasons. And some of the people say it was just some of the stuff that he was presenting to the record company. They just didn't feel like, even though his first album was kind of neo-soulish, almost borderline hip-hop at times, I think he was trying to change direction a little bit. And with record companies, when they have a formula that works for you, they don't want to change it. So that was part yeah. of the issue, too. So he got really angry. He started, you know, whatever. But he kept writing songs. I mean, he read, he wrote a song for Beyonce on the last album before this one that did really well overseas. Um, you know, so, I mean, he, he's still getting his credit. And I think he has some writing credit on her new album. So, yeah. you know, he's still doing his thing as a songwriter. It's just his own stuff that's sitting kind of in stale. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. So what um are you looking forward to his new album or I mean I I think it'll be interesting just direction wise where he goes. I mean, you know, a lot of people are not liking Beyonce's new album because, you know, it's not a bunch of single ladies and, you know, put your hands up kind of music. She really kind yeah. of changed and evolved as an artist and this is the first time I think that she's genuinely kind of speaking on where she is in her life. For a lot of people that are looking to shake their asses, they don't like it. <laughs> um, artistically, <laughs> I think it's great. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of like that. Where does he go? Because he got so much hype, so much play, and it's kind of like that sophomore jinx. Is he going to live up to what he did with that first album? So, I mean, yeah. it's a lot of that. I also want to add on to that. Well, I was going to ask Jeff. <clears throat> There was never any comf there was never any word from his official camp, like his people, saying he had an album drop. This came from the blogs and then No, no, no. He said he was gonna drop an album in July. He did. He so, said that he did. Yeah, there was reports that he actually did actually give a release date and like I said, yeah. that's how I said it was exclusively supposed to be list um, released on iTunes and that was kind of interesting because he is such good friends with Jay-Z and all of them, and I'm surprised he didn't give the right to title. So, well, you know, and Jeff, that might be also part of it. <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a question, and it's yeah. it's slightly slightly off topic, but okay. it's something you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. What is this feeling of ownership? Where did this feeling of ownership come? Where Fans feel that they can keep an artist locked in one place. Um, Thank you. 
Um, I, I think that it just comes from, um, I mean, personally, I mean, we talked about this at the music group. Um, music isn't like everything else in life is ever evolving, mm-hmm. but sometimes people get used to niches. Like, you know, when Janet Jackson changed her style, she got a lot of buck back. When even back in the day, Marvin Gaye kind of changed his style when he went from, you know, kind of what's going on to sexual healing. People were like, okay, what's going on? So I think it's just people kind of, they don't, they don't want a lot of times their artists to evolve because they get so used to the sound and, you know, oh, I can put in a Beyonce album and I know I can dance and run around where it's this new album. You can't really do that. So I, I think it's just, um, it is kind of a ownership thing of people really feeling like that these are not people, but, but products and right. they don't, they're not allowed to grow and evolve as artists. Um, and that is something that we all go through as people, but you know, it's like you said, when you are, when your life is public and then everything you put out kind of becomes owned by somebody because somebody that wants to, has to go on and go out and buy it for you to make money. It's a double edged sword because at the end of the day, it's kind of like, well, you didn't do what I want you to do. So, you know, whatever it's like people like, I mean, like Tyrese, I used to be a very big Tyrese fan. What he's been doing lately, it just doesn't work for me. So as a fan, I don't support him like that anymore. Yeah. But it has nothing to do with the fact of me feeling like I own him. It's just that musically right now, I don't feel like he's where I'm at, and that's fine because there are other people that are he's enjoying that. He's not speaking that. to you as an artist. Exactly. But yeah. he's speaking to other people. So it, it, it becomes a kind of thing like that, you know? You know, it's like, almost like breaking up and, and getting back, you know, you you know, as people grow and they grow in different directions, sometimes people have to say, you know, we're in different directions. You know, we're, we're going apart. It doesn't mean I wish you anything bad or whatever. Like I said, I think Tyrese is a great artist and I wish him all the success in the world. I just personally don't like what he's doing. Right. But others do. So can I, can I, can I add on to that? Also, Derek, we talked about this. You posted an article of, like this whole breakup thing with this guy wrote about how he broke up with Marvel. Yeah. I think it transcends that. It's just any mm-hmm. music, movies, TV shows, and whatnot. Comic books. Um, <laughs> comic books. People feel like they own this shit. And uh, my number one prime example, I'm going to give up two. One of those films. People act like because he he created Star Wars, though when he came out with the original trip with the not the original trip, but with the prequel series, people are like, that's not what that's not Star Wars. I'm like, how the fuck can you sit there and say that that's that man's creation? That's what he saw. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just you. it's just not good Star Wars. But you know, and uh, uh, like the, only, the other example I was gonna give up was um, John Sweden and. Um, Shonda, Shonda Ron. Yeah, I commend them because people try to buff back on their own damn creations. And Joss Whedon said it best: "I'm not giving you what you want. I'm giving you what you need." And Shonda Ron <laughs> said the same thing later on down the line, but just differently. I don't give a shit about what you want. This is my goddamn story. You go if you want to sit here. If you want to sit here and listen to my story, that's fine. If you don't. You know, change the channel. I'm still getting my damn money, so yeah. you know, I, I you know it's just the transcends this music, you know, all of them. But I've always mm-hmm. had an issue with that. I see one that just says another artist that fan rejected because he evolved is D'Angelo. I love all kind of music, so I was able to make the transition from Nate James. Yeah, that that's actually very true because um, D'Angelo's last album was very different from his first two albums and it was his first album in 
years. Like, I mean, he hadn't put out an album in almost 10 years, if not more. But um, the album was well received um, in, in most cases because, I mean, I mean, he actually went on tour and was doing his stuff with, you know, he toured with Mary J. Blige and a couple other artists and he played Essence. But the album got nominated for several Grammys and actually won one or two. So, I mean, yeah, he's evolving as an artist. I mean, he has always done a little bit of soul, a little bit of pop and a little bit of rock. And he kind of merged all of that. So yeah. I love it. I think it was this um, post from The Gatekeeper. But I think he posted this from this blog. I think it's called gayguys.com or something like that. And it was uh, 10 reasons friends can have sex or friends with benefits. And I don't know um, if anyone read the article, but people responded to Gerald's question. But uh, the 10 reasons were like variations on like two or three reasons. <laughs> um, um, one, reason number one, there aren't romantic feelings to begin with. Um, reason number two, we were already friends before, so who knew? So we knew each other too well. Reason number three, I reserved making love for someone a little more special. Number four, <laughs> lust often prohibits emotions from entering. Number five, there was sexual tension with no chemistry. Number six, there's hardly any sex talk or build up, just sex, no strings. Number seven, we both get it. Number eight, we're not depending on each other to validate our appeal. Number nine, it's understood that when I'm alone with a certain person, we're probably going to end up having sex. And number ten, we become our own recreation. I could have went through all the explaining each of those, but they're kind of like paragraphs of these. So. Well, were there comments on the original? Uh, oh, no, okay. Yeah. Uh, we get that up. I hear it right here. Uh, one comment, comment just said, I usually separate from friends, but my friends with benefits makes it less complicated. Turning a platonic friend into a friend with benefits is like opening up Pandora's box. And another person said, I've had a friends with benefits. It started off as such. We didn't go for homeboys to fuckboys. It was already understood. I'm horny, you're horny, I want to know if you want to know, but time to time, this might want to drink and shit. Were there any other responses, I guess, Gerald, or any other, like, discussions you had about it in other groups, or? No, I just saw it in another group, and I reposted it, um, but it, I'm, it, nobody was really talking about it, really, so that's why I was kind of like, let me see if somebody had talked about it in this group since so many more people, but most people didn't really have much to say. Yeah. So what was everyone's opinion about the article? And was I think maybe that? sometimes it hits a little too close to home, which is why you don't have a lot of people talking about it. Yeah. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, I don't have a problem. I've always... <laughs> they don't want to put their business out there. <laughs> right. Because, <laughs> right. you know, again, yeah, it's Facebook. <laughs> you can be a Facebook detective real easy. You can figure yeah. out who's fucking who. <laughs> Yeah. Oh god, no, we've had that discussion <laughs> where it's like you look at someone's selfie, it's like they fucked. I can tell. Right. <laughs> Y'all seen each other naked in a bad Yeah. Might get a lot of flag for this, but hey, uh, if you see well, I ain't gonna say this, if you go to Atlanta you see some certain people who always affront each other and stuff and I can't wait for those to get bad Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I do have a It's just that I've heard people that act like, you know, I would never, I don't, you know, they act like 
yeah. you know, your friends should be your friends and and that's it and you shouldn't cross no lines and Yeah, I mean but, that was kind of but a lot but a lot of a lot of friends started out playing around or messing around and they became friends. Yeah. But yeah. I think it's it's that happens a whole lot more than people became friends and then started playing around. Yeah. I guess I don't know. I think with that, Gerald, I think it got to the point where people are trying to, like, like Derek said a few minutes ago, they don't want to admit that they actually go down. You know what I'm saying? Um, That, yeah, we fucked, but we're friends now. And they act like, as a community as a whole, they act like that doesn't doesn't go down. But but me, I don't don't mind having friends with benefits. I I mean, I I like it, you know. not around. I'm in Brownsville where everybody's here, like, you know, scared and shit. They're like, oh, oh we can't be doing it. They might think we're doing something. I'm like, that's the point. I don't give a shit. Let them think. But whatever. Yeah, I know. I like that attitude. I really don't give a shit. I mean, like, but uh, but you know what? It's amazing to me how people operate. Like, they make their whole lives evolved around what other people are going to think about it. God, so, you know, yes. <laughs> I mean, unless whether it comes with friends with benefits or who you hanging out with, or you know how much you how much you do anything like whether you know um I was in a conversation with somebody that was saying oh they found out that I smoke weed and I'm just like I don't care if like I guess people are afraid of other people making judgments about them doing different things that are not considered okay or or might be considered a, um a bad habit or something I don't know but people you know. People trip about what other people are gonna think about yes. whatever. Yes. Yeah, we actually had a topic on that um, not too long ago. It was about um, people's regrets as they're dying, and that was like the number yeah. one regret is people living for other people's expectations, basically. Right. Uh, I remember, yeah, one of those uh, topics that pretty much nobody said anything about because. <laughs> It, it's a little Again, I think it, it's a little too close to home. Yeah. Well, I think, though, it does go back to, like, when we talk about, especially dealing with groups that have already dealt with being judged, when you start putting issues like this out, then you're right. You're not going to get a lot of responses because it becomes taboo, and I'm opening myself up for judgment again, and, and a lot of people don't like the way that that feels because right. they've experienced it. So they're not going to be completely honest and completely transparent with it. I mean, but at the end of the day, um, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things I tell people, one of the most valuable things I know I've learned just in life is I really just don't give a damn about what anybody thinks. I mean, and people laugh when I say that, but it's true because at the end of the day, you know, like they say, you know, you, you born by yourself unless you have a twin and you die by yourself. So you really have to live your life according to your own, you know, values, expectations and what it is that you're trying to get. And for so often we are taught to seek validation from others and acceptance and you know even now with all this shit about equal rights and all this other stuff in that some of us have lost our independency in who we are as people you know and being able to make adult decisions and then the thing is for some people you know as I always say you know especially being and working in a field where we talk about sex as a profession you know you still have people that are very very active and do a whole lot of things but are very uncomfortable with talking about it and my thing is if you're bad and bold enough to do it you should be bad and bold enough to talk about it because I, that's the truth you yeah. know because if i do it i'm gonna tell you i don't have a problem with that but <laughs> i understand everybody's not there and it takes but here's time the, but here's the thing and this is what i tell people all the time people can only make you feel a certain way about something if you allow them exactly 
if you give them the power to make you feel a certain way. Yeah. You know, I I don't give a fuck. <laughs> and I haven't given I haven't had a fuck to give in a really long time. <laughs> when I worked at um Ernst and Young, I worked at an accounting firm and I had a picture on my desk of me and my boyfriend and one of the admins asked me, she said, Is that your brother or something? I said, No, that's my boyfriend. Oh well, I mean, aren't you concerned about people seeing that? I said, Yes. I, that's why I put it on my desk. I answer, sir, because we look good together. <laughs> and I am concerned about people seeing it and yeah. saying, oh, Derek, look at you. You look so cute. Thank you, girl. <laughs> so at this point in the broadcast, you'll hear the voice of Xavier Spann, who is a mental health professional and a regular contributor to M3. And he posted an article in the M3 Life Group concerning monogamy. And this is the discussion we had. Um, I think I posted it, if I can remember correctly, I think the reason why I might have posted that might have had something to do with it. We were, I think we were around the topic of dating and relationships. And, when uh, aren't we? Huh? When aren't we? Well, you know, <laughs> I, I had a thought going at the time that talked about being in a relationship. And I think I was trying to address the issue with heterosexual normatives and their impact on the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. Something that it's always at my head at the time. Okay. Um, yeah. And yeah, like you said, most people will talk about being monogamous and have an interest in, at least that's what they'll verbalize. And truth be told, may or may not even engage in any kind of behavior that looks like that. What I thought was interesting about that article, though, was it talked about you know, why people might have been monogamous 20 and 30 years ago, but then it also gives you some references as today why it's advantageous to be monogamous. Um, because I, and what I particularly found out was how it, it utilized the fact that, you know, disease is the reason why people choose to be monogamous, which is why I think you have a lot of, which is, I think this is what my thought process also went into. It talked about disease is the reason why some people choose or say they choose to be monogamous. Um, not to say that being monogamous protects you necessarily from being and having come in contact with STD, but I think it's why some people don't admit not being monogamous because automatically it's viewed that if you're not monogamous, then you're at greater risk of you know contracting or having contracted something that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so you guess where you get your slut shaming and all of that kind of stuff from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where you have with the issues with people who talk about wanting to be in uh, uh, friends with benefits type relationships and things like that because it's going to be looked down. But isn't monogamy more of a religious creation? Well, it's, they look at it both ways. It's somewhat religiously driven, but then it's also driven by um, what they believe has been uh, what went on with evolution of man also, in that we chose partners who were going to give us the best offspring, mm-hmm. and that partner was going to help us as far as protecting and rearing that offspring. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of both. I think religion puts a negative spin on it for you to say that, you know, it's against uh, your your. You're defiling yourself and you're defiling your name to do this and this and this. 
sexual acts within religion have always had a stronger uh, penalty based on or a stronger look at versus other uh, sinful, considered sinful acts in religion. Even though you know, most religions, most religions, if you look at the actual text of them, will say that all, all sin or all wrongdoings are the same. Mm-hmm. People in the religions oftentimes like to single out sexual acts to be something unique and special. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was definitely an interesting article, and um, uh, I, yeah, I was um, always kind of interested in some of people's theories on it because, like I said, I, you know, good theories can only come from good data, and I always wonder, like, when people are doing like surveys of who um, says they're monogamous versus their actual behavior, or people actually going back and checking, you know. Well, um, I was going to say a lot of that data is self-reported. And right. um, I, um, well, I'm back at Emory now, and I'm working with a group that just published a uh, some results from a research study that was done here in Atlanta about, um, as Xavier says, for some people, monogamy deals with protection against STDs. And one of the things that they found out was that um, the larger number of incidences of rather different STDs in, in our community as being gay black men um, has nothing to do with us being less monogamous than our white counterparts, but more so with the fact that we have smaller social circles. And in some of those circles, like we talked about before, you know, it might be, well, you have one or two people that have dated multiple people and different things like that. But also that um, the idea of monogamy for a lot of people did deal with around religious teachings. And also for some people, it was almost kind of like where we talk about people dating, kind of look at their options finding the most viable choice that they felt like would work for them as um, individuals and what they wanted in life. So in that, there's a lot of, you know, testing the water, as they say, with other people. But um, social circles are a big part of that. And in black communities, our social circles are smaller than our um, white counterparts because, you know, I mean, a population of, you know, different things from, you know, just where we live at, you know, versus if I live in a small town, more than likely, my, my social circle is going to be made up of the people that are in that town versus a city like Atlanta where I can have access to a whole lot more people and our social circle gets, gets bigger. But, you know, it, it varies. Well, I was going to say, there's, there's one, there's five times as many white people as black people. So that would just right. <laughs> automatically just say <laughs> your community is larger. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so, um, Hashtag M3 Life Topic, do the benefits of being happily married influence your decision to want to get into a long-term relationship? How well do you think the benefits of uh, accrue to same-sex relationships? So is this article I posted, I'm going to try to click over to it and just give you the summary of it. This was in Business Insider. And it says, seven ways being married makes you more successful. Um, One, uh, happily married people live longer. Uh, generally speaking, you know, if you have a spouse, you watch your health better. Uh, another one was uh, if you're married, you're more likely to ask for a raise <laughs> at work because your spouse pesters you to ask for a raise. <laughs> it's true. Like, married people are just more successful because of these reasons. Uh, one, it says, um, I guess women who are married actually earn more. You know, talking about the wage gap doesn't necessarily apply to married women because 
I don't, you know, married women who work actually make about 97% of what men make. Um, the single women who get paid a lot, a lot less. Um, another one, uh, married people, people tend to be healthier. Uh, married people tend to actually save more money. Um, and you get, you know, tax benefits <laughs> for being mm -hmm. married. Uh, so anyway, do any of these reasons influence you to want to get married? That was the question I was asking. Because there are tons of reasons to get married that are not about love, but are about yes. success. <laughs> and, there are, and there are tons of reasons to stay single. How well do you think these apply to gay couples? Just curious. Well, I don't know. I, I recently myself felt like for a long time people always tell me, you know, you will make a great husband one day. And I always say, why? Because I think I'm complacent and very, you know, that's the way I'm looking for. Um, I guess I'm able to be great. Because I will go out of my way to help somebody. And they're like, oh, you, you'll be a great husband one day. And I'm like, I don't know where y'all get it, where husbands are just the same. You could just run over and, like, it's a walking ATM machine. You know? But that's not what I was looking at. But I recently came to the conclusion that I will possibly be a great, um, I, I will possibly, I want to get married now. Because at first, yeah. I was like, I didn't see it. I didn't right. see it. And now I'm looking at it like, yeah, I could possibly do it. So what, where did that shift come from? What do you think? I don't know. I just think it came from, um... I just woke up one morning and just, I guess, realized that I didn't want to keep, you know, being single, but not at the point where I was like, okay, I have to rush and find me somebody right now, but that I will be open to, the, you know, the possibility of marriage. In other yeah. words, I'm not dating to get married. I'm dating yeah. to get to know somebody and feel that, you know, companionship that might possibly lead to marriage. But right. I'm not out here trying to run and get a relationship just to be in one, just so we can sit there and throw a ring on a finger, um, like within the year's time. I feel you. Anyone else um, on that about? Well, I was going to say, being someone that you know, well, is married and now going through a divorce. Um, <laughs> it, it, I think for the reasons that you named in that article, um, it was funny. Mm -hmm. I went to a doctor's appointment this this week, and I was talking to heterosexual white male doctor about you know being a gay man being married going through a divorce and the thing he said to me which is very interesting is marriage initially was an institution created for the purposes of uh holding on to family wealth yep mm -hmm. and, in, wealth and ownership. ownership and like he said um you know basically his 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 baptist stepfather his baptist father-in-law told him that marriage was all about uh, making sure you got to pass down your cows to whoever you wanted to. And as I told him, I said, well, right now, I don't have any helpers in my family, so um, I think I'm good. But, uh, but at the end of the day, I think that, I mean, because in, in looking at an article like that, a lot of those benefits, especially like you talk about people in marriage, which are happy or whatever, I mean, I know couples here, um, even in this city, that have been together more than 20 years. Um, and they are happy Thank and they you, are Jeffrey. healthier. And, and, and marriage has nothing to do with that. Now, what marriage does have to do with is for a lot of people and a lot of uh, this came out of a lot of the thing about equal rights is that whole thing about being able to set and establish who made decisions as it related to you if you got sick, um, if your partner died or you passed.
who got property and things that y'all have built together. So those mm-hmm. are the protections that are offered under marriage for me that had now my reasons for marrying. You know, it was a little mix of everything. It was about some love and some other stuff. But it also was about, OK, me being able to say at the end of the day, OK, I don't want I want this person to make decisions because we've sat down and had conversations about what our final wishes were. If one of us gets sick, this is what we want to happen, because sometimes families don't respect that. Um, both mm-hmm. heterosexual and homosexual. I mean, I had a heterosexual friend that was married who got sick with cancer. His wife made a decision to take him off of life support and the respirator. His family got mad. But at the end of the day, I know him. I was his best man when he married that woman. He trusted her with his life and he told her what he wanted. Now, family didn't respect that, but she did. So it becomes those kind of rights that become very, very important, I think, for me as it relates to marriage. And love and all that does play a part in it. And I've heard like what Mark just said, too. People are like, well, you make a good husband because, you know, you're open minded and you can think this way. You can think that way. And that's fine. But I know people in relationships that have been in relationships for so long that have those same kind of relationships. And they just happen to also, in most cases, be able to go through the legal routes of not having to do marriage, but they've done the powers of attorney and the wills and all this other stuff yeah. that does then protect their property and things like that. So they don't necessarily need a marriage license. So I think it, well, might, it a, becomes a matter of what works best for you. Yeah, because mm-hmm. we were talking about that, I think, maybe last week when Xavier brought up the topic. And at this, Lonnie was like, well, why don't you just get some papers? You need you no know, power of attorney or whatever. Well, I was thinking about in those like, you know, hospital situations where you know decisions need to be made. Marriage is just much more straightforward to most people, and they understand the rights that are associated with that versus like a power of attorney. You gotta go find somewhere to have some paper. I know you gotta go find some people, but, but everybody question. knows what a marriage is. I'm but through the afford, I was gonna say through the Affordable Care Act. Obama actually, that was part of what was put in that, and a lot of people don't know that, mm. because he made it where partners could go in, like where if a family member didn't necessarily, they wouldn't like the fact you were gay and your partner was there. If y'all had an established relationship, your family could no longer throw this person out, right. whereas before it wasn't always like that. So True. even in the Affordable Care Act, he built that in. Well, this is the I thing see. I was going to say. Hold on, hold on, hold on, a lot hold on of Lonnie had a question. Hold on, Lonnie had a question. All right. Well, let's say if you do get married, right? And um, is it possible that you can like say, okay, even though we're married, I prefer for someone else to make my final wishes or someone else to um, do, say, pull the plug because I know you're not going to do it. So is it any way that you can sign a power of attorney to someone regarding your medical condition versus somebody that you're married to? And if so, is there any type of back like backlash or any type of um, war or whatever. Uh, not war, but any negative feet, uh, backlash. Well, you, you can do that. What actually happens is you can have a living will and you have an actual will. And in your living will, and as they say, you are advanced directives, when they ask you a lot of times if you, when you go in and have surgery, you sign off mm-hmm. on those, and a lot of that becomes legally binding documents. So a lot of people, even though they're married, they might give that right to their mother, their best friend. I mean, I know I have a friend that's been in a 12-year relationship. I have his medical power of attorney, meaning his partner, if anything happens to him, can't do anything. I have to make those decisions. So it is possible, but the thing is, if you don't have those documents, that's when the right then goes back to the person who is most responsible for you. So say you're not married, it then goes to your parents, or it goes to your next living um, relative. But if you have it documented, that can't be fought. 
period. Oh. Yeah, the thing I was kind of getting at was, you know, while legal battles happen, you know, because there are definitely times where, um, you know, a person, say, for instance, was kicked out of a room, and then later the documents show up and they're reinstated back. And I'm saying, in the case of being married versus being someone's guardian, which I think is kind of similar to, like, power of attorney, like, you can have someone assigned as a guardian or, you know, having you know, control over their finances and, you know, medical decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, marriage is just easily understood culturally. You know, you don't necessarily, you know, you might get the paperwork later, but I think in that, that moment when decisions need to be made right then and there, saying that you're this person's <laughs> husband or wife just kind of, mm-hmm. you know, deals with but people normally just get mad. Some people, like my dad told me, he's been trying to get me to get married for the longest. And he's just like, Lonnie, you think people actually get married because they love each other? No, they don't. So so he's been trying to get me to get married for the longest. And just because I get married to someone, especially to a woman, do you really think I really gonna, like, I'm really going to let her make some goddamn decisions for me? Hell, fuck no. Somebody who I trust and I possibly might love will be making those final decisions for me, not her. So I hear what you're saying about that, that's what marriage is for, but sometimes people, wow. they're not in love with the person that they're married to. They're just there because it's a goddamn paycheck. Oh, the first time of you getting sick, that motherfucker will pull the goddamn plug versus somebody that you love. You're like, no, bitch. But Lonnie, that's the whole, but Lonnie, that's the whole point of dating. You know, so that you get to know this person, so you don't meet somebody, but, and a month later, and a month later, we got married. And but, but you no, know, I, but, I, this is what I always say: you can keep up a good pretense for about six months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After about six months, shit starts falling apart. <laughs> I, <laughs> motherfuckers' true selves come out. Oh, they representative, yeah. as I call it, they representative. They representative go home. All right, I've been here six months. I got to go the fuck home now. <laughs> you know, and then the true person starts yeah. coming out. That is the whole purpose of the dating ritual. But Lonnie but has to decide. But it's a totally different thing. It's dating dating someone and getting married to some well, blah, blah, blah. dating someone that you truly like. I, yeah. I think it's different than being forced to be married to somebody that you really don't give two shits about. Well, how do you? Because it's you about forced? a goddamn image. And yeah. I understand that. But how you? I mean, in this in this country, we don't force people. We don't do prearranged marriage. <laughs> we don't. We did that. People as don't, I, as but I there may be people out there. When I talk about the, back in the back in the back in the low house in the prairie days, yes, I <laughs> talk about. I get what Lonnie's saying. Actually, I do too. I do too because I, I know people who've done that. I know people who've done that. Got me a. Yeah. They've done it for socioeconomic reasons. They've done yeah. it for family expectations. They've done it because I got her pregnant now, and I know this is the right thing. Oh, God, that is a whole solely um, the wrong thing to do. Yeah. That's what we say because we're we not in that situation. You got to think about situational stuff and not taking this on to say, well, this is the decision I would have made because you're not in that particular situation. And that changes a whole lot of things. Um, if you're, let's say, for instance, like you said before, like we've already said, being married is oftentimes tied into managing, maintaining, keeping the wealth in the family. So you're a part of 
what's that? The news reporter with the uh, the real attractive white guy with white hair. Um, Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper. Now, there's a lot of speculation about why his mother is not leaving him any money. There's a lot of speculation, but I think the general concept, and just to use him as an example, is to say because he's a gay man. Now, if he was a playboy white boy with a beautiful blonde-headed, blue-eyed wife and 2.3 kids, she left him the money and a and a foundation at the same time to make sure he had money, even though he already has it. And that's the reality of why some people would choose in their point to say, I'm going to do what I have to do to keep my family happy, to honor my family, to honor my last name and mm-hmm. things of this nature. Now, where I break apart with people is that as gay men, we don't really we have a choice. We have a lot, lot more choices on stuff like that because we're not raised into a situation where girls supposed to be married at a certain time. It's, it looks bad to be a uh, to be a spinster, or it looks bad to have kids out of wedlock. That's not something that gay men have to deal with. So we get married because of a conscious decision that we made, a choice that we made, and you have that part of us that marry a man because we're tired of being the thought. And then you got that group of us that marry women because we don't want friends in the family to pick out that we are actually gay. They know, even though I, I exhibit no quote-unquote gay traits, if I stay if I stay single long enough, people are gonna start talking. It's gonna mm-hmm. start. I might not be into women like that. So I'm gonna go ahead and marry this woman, but I'm gonna cheat on her every chance I get. And everybody's gonna understand I got a wife. Um, so there are some things that go into this whole why people get married. It's a and it always boils down to why are you getting married. And I and when I when I do uh, marriage counseling, that's one of my biggest questions. Why are you getting married? Because I need to know if you're getting married because she's pregnant and her dad will have a shit fit, or are y'all getting married because you truly think this is the this is it for me? This is what I want to do, or are you more into it than she is, or you know whatever the case may be? That's one of the first questions I always like to ask people: is Why are you getting married? Make sure to visit MailMediaMind.com where you'll find links to all of our social media accounts. Uh, one in particular being YouTube. On YouTube, you can find video selections that are part of this discussion, but are not included in this podcast. One on Donald Trump and the current uh, political season, and another on race and politics. Um, You can subscribe, uh, like, comment, share. Um, All of that is appreciated. And uh, back to the discussion. This was actually not on the list. I um, was thinking about putting it up there today. But it was a, a recent study, I think came out this past June, about addiction. Um, let me see if I can pull it up. But I re- I'll just summarize it. Basically, there was a, there's been at least about 100 years that, um, you know, uh, hard, hard drugs, say like heroin, have been illegal. Heroin, cocaine. It's been about 100 years. And the reason mainly for making them illegal in the first place was that we believe that if you put a stigma on it or a punishment that those who are addicted to those substances would have an incentive to not be addicted to them. But I guess just recently we I guess noticed that one of the problems of criminalizing drug hard drug use is that it tends to cut off people's connection to other people like if you go to prison or you're doing some um, 
you know, it ruins um, lives, basically. It, you know, it's kind of hard to love an addict to begin with. But on top of that, you're, there's these consequences on top of that. We sever connections, which I guess one of the things they understand um, in this study is that human connection or, you know, stronger relationships are what are usually the deciding factor in people overcoming addiction. Um, and it started with this um, experiment where they put two rats in a cage. And one was, you know, they had like one water that was laced with heroin and one that's just clean. And typically, if they're in a cage by themselves, the, the rat will just drink the heroin until it ODs. And, uh, but they noticed that if they put the rat in like a cage with other rats and some sort of stimulation, you know, plenty of food, that the rats leave the heroin water alone, <laughs> basically saying that part of what makes someone tend toward addiction is the fact that they lack strong social bonds. Um, mm -hmm. I guess they're, you know, this is one of those things where I guess people will turn to addiction or to substance abuse after, say, trauma, for instance. Uh, a lot of times trauma will cut off your connection to other people, like you have a hard time relating to other people. And so there's this substance that provides you refuge, I guess, from that sort of disconnection. Uh, so you end up bonding with this chemical or this experience or whatever, saying that most addiction plays out in that pattern, or at least that is one model of addiction that you can look at, is that it's an adaptation of our need to bond with people. Um, anyway, I was just wondering, I actually had a friend recently who's in, in rehab right now. <laughs> so I've been thinking about addiction a lot because I, um, yeah, I just, I, I was talking to his friend and basically like he didn't believe in the disease theory of addiction until his, uh, his friend now is in rehab because, you know, some people just don't react the same way to, you know, drugs or alcohol in the same way because I think you know, they, they gave an example in this article, too, saying, like, if you were to give everyone heroin for 20 days, you're supposed to take heroin three times a day for the next 20 days, you know, what do you think the percentage of people who have become addicted to heroin would be? And I guess most people intuitively believe, like, you know, close to, like, 50%, maybe, you know, uh, you just taking heroin every day. But... You'll look at statistics of people who, say, for instance, uh, came out of, um, you know, when heroin was used by the military during the Vietnam War, like literally medical-grade heroin to treat a lot of different, um, you know, injuries and such. They, you know, only like 95% of the people who, you know, stopped that treatment didn't weren't hooked on heroin. So, uh, yeah, the vast majority of people are not going to be addicted to you know, substances just because they're exposed to them. It's just a certain personality, you know, or a certain trait. And they're saying, I guess they're honing in on that trait, which is basically dealing with human connection. Like, usually it may not be causally related, but there's a correlation between people having dysfunctional relationships with other people that identifies an addictive personality. So anyway, I'm just throwing it out there. Addiction. Mm. <laughs> Anyone have any like theories or stories or? Uh, All right. So with addiction, you know that's that's a long-winded two-day conversation. But yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not so sure. I had to read. I had to see that study myself because 
Um, with addictions, one of the things that I have always known about it is that these people oftentimes change their social circles. And then they also will change how they socialize. So if you talk about a heroin addict, then heroin, you, if their current group of friends are not heroin addicts, and it's funny because I just did a video, I just showed a video from the FBI to my patients about that. But um, if you take a heroin addict who has 10 friends, and none of those 10 friends use heroin, then they will disconnect from that 10 friends and go find another set of friends that do use heroin. They right. need those set of friends because, A, those people are going to help them get the drug when they need to get the drug. Those people are going to help them use the drug when they need help using that drug. And they'll have something in common with those people that allows them to feel normalized into dealing with those people. So yeah. they don't feel ostracized dealing with their non-drug addict using friends. Yeah. Um, now, yeah, just because you're exposed to it, particular drug doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be addicted to that drug and oftentimes you will find out with addicts they will try a lot of different drugs and alcohol until they find the drug that works for them that makes them that gives them that thrill that they just can't live without so that addiction develops and it starts um, but to say that it's got anything to do with social isolation alone I couldn't see that because I know a lot of times people will use drugs, especially recreational drugs, ecstasy, cocaine, marijuana, alcohol, they use those oftentimes in groups and in social settings. That's why they're called recreational drugs. Um, the problem is, you know, we talk about making it illegal. A lot of these, these illicit drugs that we have today were once upon a time legal. They were once upon a time used in medical procedures or used in studies and used and used and used for different things. And we found out they're a lot more detrimental to the person than they were helpful. And then in the fact of the matter is we can't get them off. Heroin is basically the street version of of um, uh, morphine. Correct. Mm -hmm. It's a street version of morphine. It's just not right. as clean. And then you start looking at cutting agents that people use and things like that that make it that much more worse, and you continue to use it. So with addiction, what defines addiction, you got to keep in mind also, is not so much the amount that a person uses or what they're using per se, but it's the impact on their life. It is the outcomes that come out of their use of this drug or this alcohol. Because all of us probably drink alcohol, but only a few of us are addicted to it. That's just like right. there's a significant number of people who may smoke cigarettes, but you're smoking this cigarette and the doctor's telling you, you keep smoking and your lungs are going to shrivel up and die and you will too, and you keep smoking. So you're addicted. It's a legal substance, but you're addicted and it's a problem for you. Yeah. Um, I was just going to add to what Xavier said because I actually worked in a treatment center for a long time. And well, one, like he said, you know, cigarettes, I think, is the prime example. The most abused and most addictive um, thing on this planet is caffeine, one, which is a very legal <laughs> substance. You have a lot of people that got to have their coffee, and I know some people. Dave and I had their cup of coffee. They're a completely different person. Um, so we need to think along those signs. And like you said, I mean, addiction just does not always surround drugs. I mean, you have people that have food addictions. You have people that have sex addictions. I mean, addictions are, at the end of the day, things that for people that a lot of times they use to mask or medicate. And I say we say self-medicate. 
other things right. that might be going on, which for why in some cases, in some minority groups, there is a disproportionate number of people that are addicted. One, because we have a lot of undiagnosed mental health conditions. And instead of going to see a therapist or understanding what that means, then because we are exposed through a lot of times some of our social settings, then we go out and we look for this thing that makes us feel like you said, trauma. Trauma is major. Trauma is the one thing that no one can avoid in life. Everybody deals with it differently. And for some people, they actually need the help that they don't know how to go get. So they reach out and they go out and then they engage in what some people consider self-destructive behavior or other things about that. But then also there's also some genetic ties to addiction um, that are looked at. And I mean, I know within my brother's family, there is a history of alcoholism and drug addiction. My brother has begun to repeat those cycles, not necessarily because of exposure, not necessarily because of social circle, but because there is something predisposed genetically that when he goes through certain things, instead of looking for a out in the sense of saying, I need to talk to somebody or I need to confide in somebody, he will separate himself intentionally and go out and he'll drink and he'll do this or he'll smoke weed or he'll do whatever. So there are a lot of different factors that drive addiction. And it's not always something that deals, like you said, socializing is different. But like Xavier said, I know most people that I know, when they actually are active in drug addiction and they are full blown out there, they do separate themselves from their family because they know that a lot of their families are not going to support the habit. They're not going to get you your drugs. So you're going to go into social circles that are more accepting and they will allow you to have better access. Yeah. So birds of a flood of birds of a feather do flock together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hello, uh, somebody. <laughs> but now it was interesting. I, I will post the, um, the article in the uh, M3 Life group. It was, um, it was something recent. And they were saying, like, one, um, one of the things they were just saying was using the model of um, what we call interventions. You know, like when people come to, you know, confront someone about their addiction, they said one of the models they found that worked better than saying, like, if you don't quit drugs, I'm going to cut myself off from you was to have the message here like this is how your drug use is affecting me and I'm gonna love you no matter if you're addicted or you're not you know like if you're clean or you're sober I'm always gonna love you and I want to help much much more likely to respond to that message than saying I'm gonna cut you off if you don't quit doing drugs because uh, most people uh, would be like well fuck you I got someone else who will support me And I was going to say, did that talk about anything as it relates to racial dynamics as far as how that's broken up? Because I I know anything on that. And I would say that because I know with the show Intervention that's been on, um, I know A&E for a while, and they do talk kind of along that model, that intervention. But um, if you're already from a disenfranchised family Mm -hmm. or you're not in a group where you've ever, quote unquote, felt the support in the sense of, you know, close to my mom and close to my father, whoever, whatever, those type of interventions don't always work. Um, Because a lot of times, I mean, and we always say, people decide to get clean and deal with addictions a lot of times when they, quote unquote, as we say, hit rock bottom. Rock Mm -hmm. bottom means a lot of things differently to a lot of people. But at the end of the day, if your rock bottom might not be that your family has dissolved you, if they've already dissolved you, it's like, oh, well, screw y'all. So it really does become for some people just personally getting to a point where they realize, you know, where where I'm at now is not where I want to be 
and they look at certain things and then they say, okay, that's, that's all we tell people. A lot of times you can't, as a family, force people into treatment because it usually doesn't work because they have to want it for themselves. Right, right. But at the same time, wouldn't being in treatment be better than just still being out using? Because <laughs> I, was, I was making that point to a friend of mine because a friend of mine just got into treatment. I was like, yeah, I get it. He doesn't. He's probably going to you know, relapse as soon as he comes out of rehab. But wouldn't this still be better than him just continuing to slowly slide into this slow motion suicide that he's doing right now? I mean, rehab is at least better than that, right? Well, a lot of times, though. But is it? Because, you know, know. that's the question. It's an open question. But if you're you're in it and you're just there and you're not getting anything out Mm -hmm. of it, then you're just, that's five weeks where you were dry. Right. But if that whole five weeks you sit around, ooh, I got three days, two hours, and 53 minutes to go, <laughs> they let me out this motherfucker so and I can go high. get high, yeah. then, then you might as well go. I guess so, but I'm, at the same time, I'm like, he's at least clean. Well, he's, he's clean. clean. Right, because he's clean at the moment because it's a right. matter of, like we talk about when we talk about sex. It's right. like, you know, is a person truly not sexually active because they are choosing not to be or because they can't be. So the concept of abstinence even. So it's just like that's kind of works the same way. And like we said, a lot of times when people go out of treatment and their motivations and reasoning was not correct and going there, when -hmm. they come out, their addiction sometimes is worse than when Mm -hmm. they went in. So it can be harmful. And I agree with you, time clean is great for some people because it gives them a time to clear their brain and really think. But for some people, like Derek just said, I'm just counting down and buying my time. I'm doing this because somebody made me a force, me, yeah. told me if I did this, then this would be whatever, whatever. But as soon as I get out of here, I'm going to find the first hit that I can. And a lot of times they will overly indulge where, say, before they might have only used once a day. Now I'm getting right. to use three times a day because I need to make up for the time I've lost. <laughs> and that's when you get into overdoses and things like that. Unfortunately, God, I hate the fact that you're right about that. You're so right. <laughs> Well, okay. Relapse is a part of it. Okay, so relapse is a teachable teachable moment to me, right? Right. Relapse is a part of it, and and there's some things that you can do even with that. So, I guess I deal with a lot of clients that are in what I like to call forced early remission because they're in recovery or they're clean because they're in an institution that have a choice, and they didn't choose to be there. So, what I do a lot of times is I deal with the fact that okay you don't want to be here there's some things you can do to avoid coming back because if you go back out there and you get back into what you were doing then nine times out of ten you're coming back so i that kind of opens that door for me to have a conversation with them to talk about you know well let's talk about why you're using in the first place and maybe Mm -hmm. we can get to the bottom of this right maybe resolve this even though you didn't want to be here to begin with it wasn't your choice to get in treatment you're here now let's do something with that time uh, but yeah, relapse is a thing. It's gonna happen, um, exactly. probably more often than not. And that time that they spend clean, if if they're going to be clean and gonna stay clean at any given point, all of that's gonna it's gonna add up. But the problem though with a lot of these illicit drugs that we talk about is they pretty much take years off your life every time you use them. Mm-hmm. And you don't know when yeah. you're going to be in a round of time. And that's with anything, whether it be alcohol or cocaine or marijuana or whatever. You just never really do know. 
when it's going to be the end. And, and overdose is something that happens, like you say, a lot of times right after they get out of treatment, especially if they didn't really get very much work done in treatment um, because their bodies have adjusted now to not having it. And yeah. now you've introduced a massive force back on your body. Right. right, right. Back to using as much as you used to use, you had a higher tolerance. The right. heart doesn't know what to do. The brain doesn't know what to do. The other internal organs all shut down and they end up dying. Um, and, and that's what happens. Actually, I posted the link. Uh, I don't know if you all can see it. If I posted it in the right place. Okay. But that link is a um, good link to watch. It's very raw and very open about what addiction, uh, opiates, prescription opiates, and heroin can do to you. Yeah. Okay. Xavier, can yeah. you explain very uh, quickly, if you can, about the stages of change model? I know we use it a lot in HIV prevention, but I know it includes, like you said, that whole change model where relapse is a part of that and kind of what that means in this okay. situation. Um, Petrasca de la Clemente created this thing called stage of change. Okay. So you have pre contemplation, contemplation, um, the planning, action, and then after action is where they'll say either it's going to be remission or that's where your relapse comes in and you kind of start over. In pre-contemplation, that is that this person may not have even an awareness that they have an addiction. I just smoke I just smoke crack every day. I mean, what's so bad about that? In my body, they don't really generate the thought process that there's a problem, all right? right. They get into treatment and somebody's talking to them and they're like, well, I'm not happy about the relationship with my family. I'm not happy with the way things have went. I would like to see some things change. Um, and so that's when they're kind of contemplating well, what needs to change. And that's when you talk about, well, what do you think you should change? Uh, well, maybe I can use a little less. Maybe I cannot use at home. Maybe I cannot use so much. Um, from there, they'll move on to, well, what can we do to put some of these things in place and start to plan how we can uh, make these changes be real. Um, and then they put those things into action, you know. So um, I've decided that, you know, I'm only going to use on my birthday. And if I don't have it readily available, I'm not going to go looking for it. You know, just whatever. These are just the most minimal changes. And there's some more skills and techniques in there about right. you know, rephrasing and restating, you know, and all that kind of stuff. I'm not getting all of that. Um, and then they get all the way through this process to the other end. And so sometimes they'll relapse. A lot of times they will relapse. It doesn't mean that they'll never get clean or that they have to start all back over. But it sometimes turns into, well, what did we mess up at in the planning phase? Um, we were preparing to make these changes that weren't working. And so therefore, this is how you end up relapse. Yeah, yeah. No, that definitely uh -huh. is interesting. I, um like I said, I I've not really read enough about addiction, so that was uh, definitely something I had to do when I, my friend ended up in rehab. I was like, oh, well, <laughs> let me read up on it. My specialization is in. I'm back to school. My specialization, I got it yeah. in process addictions and substance addictions. Yeah, yeah, that is somewhat new to me. I, it is, but I appreciate it. Um, Thank you for listening to the M3 Bear Essentials podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe, like us on iTunes, and give us five-star reviews. If you would like to get more content from M3, visit MailMediaMind.com. Visit our YouTube channel. You can also find us on Tumblr, Twitter, 
Instagram, Pinterest, and Facebook. We have five groups on Facebook, which many of the comments and topics are posted on a daily basis. Um, Thank you so much for your participation and your support. And we'll see you next week.